0: Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise.
1: After the end of World War II, the world was split into two,
0: East and West. This marked the beginning of the era called the Cold War. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian still, and always. Today's episode is Virtuous Mission, our introduction episode to 2004's Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So Metal Gear Solid 3 won't have quite the long exposition as Metal Gear Solid 2 did. Maybe it's rather obvious as the actual production and run-up to MGS2 was a big part of the deception behind that game. MGS2 was intended to be Kojima's last Metal Gear, a narrative you'll hear from here on out. He handed 3 off to his team at KCE Japan, but it never got off the ground and Kojima was brought back in to write and direct. Initially, MGS3 was intended for the PlayStation 3, but would end up coming out a full two years prior to the PS3's launch. In that, MGS3 comes in at the back end of the PS2 era, and it takes full advantage of the hardware, another narrative we constantly hear with Metal Gear Solid. Getting to the game design itself, I'll quote Kojima. I decided that MGS3 should be about survival, and I started thinking about how survival would work in the game. The game takes place in the 60s, and if the game was going to be about survival, I decided it had better take place in the jungle, he said. However, MGS's previously heavy reliance on tight indoor environments meant a lot of -of proof-of-concept testing was required, including experiments to see if the team could create MGS in a real-time outdoor environment. The team would end up traveling to Japanese forests on Yakushima and Amami-Oshima, and even Canada, to study terrain and lighting. Kojima's military guru, Motosada Mori, taught the team about camouflage, stalking, and yes, the basics of CQC. Snake, try to remember some of the basics of CQC. All those things, camo, stalking, and CQC, would end up being systems in the game. More on this later. With the whole new type of environment layout and gameplay mechanics, it was clear early on that MGS2's graphics engine wouldn't be of much use. The developers went to work on that, while Kojima came up with the story. Norihiko Hibino and Harry Gregson Williams would double-team the score again, providing a largely orchestral one, working in the main MGS theme from previous games, but also some new leitmotifs that would carry on into 4 and beyond. The in-game music is in the same Metal Gear vein, and though still very electronic, feels less metallic and more wildernessy than its previous iterations.
1: There's... A lot of uh wind instruments in it and um i think there's a there's a famous possibly apocryphal story that harry gregson williams said he didn't want to come back unless the next one was quote in a rainforest and Coach not knowing that that's what the plan already was coaching my like laughed at him and said well i'll see what i can do but um there's a lot of woodwinds there's a lot of um softer guitars like like more plucking and more like more technical guitar playing and a lot more um it's just like softer. The, the 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 color palette and the musical palette both kind of have a more earthy, like kind of brownish yeah. tone as far as, as opposed to the, you know, two in particular sounds like blue steel. Like it's just like really, really aggressive and metal and.
0: Burnished. Right. I struggled to come up with the adjective I wanted to use before I settled on a word I made up wildernessy, um, because I didn't want to say it was like jungly in a way that's like, you know, colonialist of speaking of like yeah, African yeah, yeah. people. Um, but and I, yeah, it took me, what, four minutes here to make reference my first Marvel movie. I think about um, the car chase in Civil War where Black Panther hops onto the back of uh, the car that Steve Rogers is driving, and when Steve sees him in the rearview mirror, there's just the slightest whistle that's like very much sounds like something from a tribal band or a tribal instrument. And that's kind of the vibe going here, but without sacrificing any of that Metal Gear aesthetic, um, because it's not supposed to be super melodic. Um, it's supposed to be more just uh, kind of percu- or percussion and bass. But like you said, they find a way to soften it and add a little bit of uh, tone to it with these uh, woodwinds and stuff like that. I'm thinking
1: particularly of the, uh, the caution theme, which is my favorite probably my favorite piece of like action music in the entire series. Cause it's just very like playful. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 I think super running outside, it sounds like the music that plays in a cartoon when someone's sneaking around through the kitchen, trying to get cookies. Like it's very playful. Yeah. Um, this, is this the last one that has the original theme in it? I believe so,
0: yes, because because of the uh, obvious <laughs> plagiarism. <laughs> yes. And uh, I think some of like uh, when we hear the main mGS theme from one and two in this game, it's almost always in a like different uh, tempo or in kind of a different aesthetic. Like when you hear it with Granin, it's in the like a very like, I don't know on a beach kind of uh, uh, version of the theme. And then you hear it again at the end when Eva tells you everything that happened, but that's a very slowed down melodramatic version. Um, And you get kind of a new MGS theme, which is actually the opening theme to our podcast, um, is the one that was introduced in MGS3, and it kind of became the main theme going forward from here.
1: I'm glad the old theme shows up, though, because it has the most... I think it hits the hardest of any of them, and having it for the ending is really, really effective.
0: Yes, the fact that they only drop it at a couple of moments is really what makes it work here, Um, as opposed to getting hit with it over the head every time you launch the game like you did with MGS2, per se. Um, But speaking of every time you launch the game, uh, Cynthia Harrell would be brought in to do the titular and iconic Snake Eater main theme written by Habino. Rika Muranaka, who composed the ending songs of the last two games, The Best is Yet to Come and Can't Say Goodbye to Yesterday, does Don't Be Afraid, which plays during the game's final cutscenes, and the end credits is not an original song, but Star Sailor's Way to Fall. Kojima initially considered going with a Bowie song here, because of course he did. Those songs, of course, were Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes, two major Tom songs. I
1: wonder if
0: yeah, if he
1: didn't go with space out of it because it would make it seem like the game was about the fury the whole
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the original concepts for this game was to have it heavily focus on the space race and space travel. And they still yeah. work a lot of that into this game. But I think that was going to be more of the driving force than a proto-metal metal gear that ended up being the story that we got. The game would release on November 17, 2004, in North America, with the rest of the world getting it in following months. 2006 saw the release of MGS3 Subsistence, now published under the name Kojima Productions which is probably how most of y'all are playing this game today. This is the version included in all your HD remakes and collections, and is most notable for two things. One, the 3D camera that allows you to dynamically change the view, and two, the inclusion of the original MSX versions of Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. The former came over to the States in a heavily ported version, and the latter didn't make the journey at all, except as the meme that Kojima carried forward to Metal Gear Solid 1998, But that's all old hat for this podcast. The game would sell almost 4 million copies and was a critical and commercial success and still holds up today as one of the all-time greats, both for the franchise and games overall. So before we dive into the game itself, I guess we'll introduce our own experiences or history with this game. I first rented this game in November 2004 when I was home from college during Thanksgiving break. Uh, I played it for a couple of hours with my buddy that night. We got through the virtuous mission, but we kind of skipped through cutscenes because we were just kind of anxious to play. So I didn't get a full appreciation then and there of everything that was going on, but uh, Being in college at the time, uh, my ear to the ground on video games was less than it had been before, so while I knew this game was coming out, I didn't really know anything about it, or specifically that this snake would go on to be the big boss character that was referenced in previous games. I did know Snake was a GMO soldier, for lack of a better term, and I didn't know the timeline of Metal Gear Solid that well, so I could see a situation where the main character was still Solid Snake. Um, and then after we kind of met Ocelot and some other parts of the story, the Shagohad, um, I figured, oh, this might just be like a Zelda-like take where you take the same uh, like narrative pillars, like you have a Zelda, you have a Ganon, you have a Link, and then you kind of just shake them up and spit out a new story. I thought it might be something like that. I wouldn't say it was till about halfway through, maybe two thirds of the way through, um, where I started realizing, oh shit, this is about Big Boss and his origin story. Um, I found out before he lost his eye in the game, but I probably found out way, you know, way too late, given how often this game hits you with the word "boss" over and over and over again. From a gameplay standpoint, the first thing that stood out to me was the lack of a radar, because I spent most of the first two games, uh, you know, kind of Pac-manning using the radar in the corner. Um, And this is the game where, in very appropriate for the name Snake, you actually start spending most of your time lying on the ground and crawling through the maps, or at least I do for the most part. Uh, My buddy would go on to hold on to that rental, but I picked up my own copy back on campus and I proceeded to beat and love the game. Um, It was one of the first games that hit me with real emotion. I wouldn't say the first one because I've said, you know, the two previous Metal Gear games and Final Fantasy games, yada, yada. But it is a very emotionally dense game in a good way. Um, I really love the camo system. Uh, The boss fights ruled and we'll have a whole episode just on them. And, you know, unfortunately, I just didn't spend too much time with the game because I was very much a beat it and sell it and get my next game because, again, I was in college and did not have a ton of money. And I really regret going through that lifestyle as long as I did. Um, the legacy of that game for me is um, I'd end up picking up uh, subsistence copies uh, and play it on my backwards compatible PS3. Um, and I've kind of played it off and on again, um, you know, basically from 2004 until 2011. Um, and then I just kind of didn't play that game again until last year when I started replaying all the Metal Gear Solids. Um, but I did revisit the story just by watching the full thing on YouTube because I am that obsessed with the series, as you can probably tell. And it still remains my favorite of the Metal Gear Solid series. So how about you? What's your experience with Metal Gear Solid 3?
1: Again, I wasn't a PlayStation guy, so it was the first one I ever saw because a friend of mine in high school, Nate, I actually went back and thought about this. I think I had it wrong when I was talking about it before. We were we were talking about games, and he told me I would like it because I, I quote, like history stuff, which was true, I guess. Um, I went over to his house one day, and I watched him do the whole Virtuous mission and really liked it, and then just went and bought it. I may have gone to a game trading place we used to have here called McVans. Um, I think that's how I got it, but um, because I I remember beating it, and then I rented it again a few years later. I, I'd sold it or something.
0: Sounds about right. Yeah.
1: Maybe maybe I I definitely beat it in 2008. Also, this was like 2006 or seven because I was still in high school. Oh no, I moved in 2006. It was the summer of 2006. Then it was before I moved. Yeah, so it was between junior and senior year. Um, because I didn't live in the same neighborhood as this, as this kid after that, and I didn't have a car, so I definitely wasn't over his place. It makes sense. But anyways, yeah, I, I definitely beat it a couple times, and then I got the HD collection when it came out, the, the 360 one with Peace Walker. Beat it again then, and then I think I sold that when I sold my 360 on my games to buy my Xbox One, and I didn't play it again until I just went and found that old, may have been the same copy of the, of the HD collection a few weeks ago and finally played it again. So I beat it four times for sure. I hit like more and more every time I play it. It was the first one I played in Middle Gate. It was always my favorite, like from the moment I started. Then the only one I think came close is probably Peacewalker or maybe during the twenty five or so hours in the middle of V when it gets really good. But now it's like it's more and more now. I just I just went on backlog.com, which is the letterbox for games so that mm-hmm. doesn't work that well. Um and I, I honestly it's my third favorite game. It's like it's one of the fifteen to twenty, twenty five media things that I like recommend wholeheartedly to anyone like it's up there to me i was actually thinking about this last night because i was watching a uh i was watching a video about just about first person shooters and about doom and how the thing people never ever talks about with doom because that's a game that that lives off of it's lives through its references like you know it's mm-hmm. heavy metal the genre and the the comic it's uh Iron Maiden albums, it's H.R. Giger art, it's right. all these things like Star Wars, like the original Star Wars That it's all these things that it it's obvious what the references are, but they come together in a way that it's immediately its own new thing mm-hmm. like within 30 seconds of the original Doom it's a, it's a new thing, it's a thing that did not exist before, it's its own new style the first Star Wars is like that and I really feel like Snake Eater in particular is like that Cowboy Bebop is like that, where it's, it's obvious what it's pulling from, but it does it in a way that it becomes a new genre unto itself, as as uh, kind of was described as. But, like, that's a rare thing. That's hard to do, to immediately transcend your influences and become instantly an iconic and unique thing on its own. And Snake Eater is that within two minutes of the game starting, to me. It just is immediately that. And Metal Gear in general is, is is has its own vibe, obviously, but Snake Eater is the one that I think most immediately stands out. I mean, if I had played Metal Gear Solid when it came out, I might think that, the first one. Mm-hmm. That's why I think it's interesting that um, the Snake Eater theme, I know some people criticize it. I think some people criticize it being, and I actually I do kind of sympathize with this, it playing during the the final fight. Because it is such a cheesy song, it kind of doesn't feel like it fits that. But I love that song anyway, so I don't really care. But it, people have made the point that, like, to Kojima, it, it would be a lot like how the best is yet to come sounds to anyone who doesn't speak Gaelic. Like it, it has no meaning. It's just a pretty song. That's a good point. Yeah. Like if you don't, if you don't speak English, you don't really understand quite how cheesy that song is. It's just a beautifully song, song experience. So that makes sense why he would put it there, but I definitely understand. I sympathize with that idea that I love the song. I love that song whole, you know, unreservedly, but it playing during the finale is a little like, Hey, I don't know if this, <laughs> I don't know if this fits here. Murdering the boss. But, anyways, I wanted to say before we get too far on, because we're going to be talking about the game in in like a macro sense. um, I think the thing that makes Metal Gear Solid three the best is that it—it's the first one. I think it's because the first one was really mocapped fully. Mm -hmm. It embraces Kojima's talents as a director because he's you know he knows what he he at least understands action cinema very well. Mm -hmm. And while disconnecting it from sequel baggage, baggage kind of restrains the problems he has as a writer. So it's it's more kinetic. It's more of an action, it's it's the first one that really is like an action movie. And you can tell that because the cutscenes, they're, you know, the cutscenes in this game are pretty long. There's five, 10 minute cutscenes, but because they're focused entirely on what's happening in the story, and there's not a lot of, as we'll talk about with NTS4, a lot of slideshows because the content artists have no idea what to do with backstory about you know about an ancient cabal of secret of of a secret society that controls the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, there's only there's a few in the beginning, sort of establishing the setting. If you don't know anything about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that works. And Major Zero doing a lot of it too, which kind of fits him. That's kind of his character thing. But he's the back the back he's the exposition guy mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but instead of like the only one I can think of in the entire game is Volgan describing. Who the philosophers are at the end of the game which is fine that's you can do that at the end of the game that's kind of what exposition's for there's not a whole lot of like let me tell you about this then it's 20 minutes of something about i mean we love that stuff we love the you know them kind of weave in real history and real philosophy but it definitely cuts a game off at the knees there's not really any of that in three it's a lot of these characters bouncing off of each other and doing cool action choreography and like Ocelot spinning his guns for three entire minutes—it's great. Like it's much more enjoyable to watch.
0: Yeah, and that Vulgan scene that you reference, where he tells you these are the like—that's specifically supposed to be the Bond villain telling Bond. Like it—it's not just uh, mindless exposition. It actually fits into the aesthetic and theme of the game as well.
1: And it is necessary because the philosophers are a completely new idea at that point. Like, right? You do need that if you're going to do that kind of game.
0: Yeah. And I hate to bag on Emma Emmerich too much, but I feel like that's Mm -hmm. probably where MGS2 was the weakest, is when Mm -hmm. we had all sorts of conversations about the Emmerich family. And granted, the Emmerich family does matter to the MGS saga, but it definitely felt like this is just kind of an information dump that is only really relevant because this character is going to die in 20 minutes. Um, And then it it doesn't have any of those like random meandering conversations. Everything is about the next boss or what snake just did, or what's the next phase of the shagohad. Um, it's brisk and it moves, which is kind of, you know, funny to say. And it, like you said, like there's a lot of stuff up front, but that's what I like, is like it gets a lot of that exposition out of the way in the first hour of the game, really. Um, you have your mission uh, objectives, and we'll go over this in a few minutes. Um, you play for a little bit, you have the big boss reveal and theme song, another mission objective, and then after that, you're pretty much cut loose. Um, you obviously have cutscenes throughout, it is Metal Gear Solid, um, but there's no real significant stops. There isn't an hour-long cutscene with Big Mama in the middle of the third chapter of this game or whatever. What game could you be referencing? I don't understand. oh, <laughs> uh, we'll learn about Big Mama in this game so we can talk about her for the next game. The other thing I wanted the way this game's
1: paced, and we're gonna I'm gonna try and keep a track keep track of this. I should have written down while I was playing, but I can I can go through again. I did get the infinity candle, so maybe I will go through again while we're doing this. Yes. The way the game the common example is building up to the first the Ocelot boss fight, like once the Operation Snake starts, which isn't what we're doing today, but people played it. hmm um, then it kind of starts you in a little swamp area with just a bunch of, uh, guy balls and like snakes around. And then the next area is a little smaller with the same amount of, so you know, a little more packed in, a little more dangerous. Then you get a few guards. Then the next area is more guards and kind of an open-ended stealth area. Then the next area is that whole base that you can go fuck around in for 45 minutes if you want. There's so much you can do there. Mm-hmm. Then you fight Ocelot immediately. Then you jump down in the cave and it's back to just... As, 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 a, as I've to described, quiet time with the animals. And it does that little, every four or five screens, there's a boss of some kind, there's some kind of big set piece, and then it wraps back down. And it's like a perfectly, like, it really is like, like shifting gears, like going up and then down, RPM up and then back down, up and then back down. And it's the whole game is like that. And it's a really, really, A, it lets you play it in like 90 minute chunks really easily. And B, it lets you, it really gives you more space because you, you kind of get used to like, oh, I'm going to have a boss fight soon. This is the area I can fuck around and mess that's with the guard AIs and do all the fun actual stealth stuff, like which is what this game has yeah. that 2 does not really have. is a huge stealth area.
0: Yeah, and they use that pacing to build momentum because each time it ratchets up, it ratchets up a little bit higher than it did previously. Um, the boss fights get more serious and, you know, Bigger? Could they kind of like pace the goofier bosses up front with the pain and you know the fear, Um, but then once you start getting to the end, the fury and the sorrow. There's a lot lot more emotion um, in those battles, or at least a little more going on than just like a weirdo guy who does weird things. Mm -hmm. So I, I really really like that, and I think one thing you'll notice, you the listener will notice about this game is we're going to spend a lot of time just talking about the maps, Um, because I feel like though Metal Gear has always been a survival game and you want to, you know, get all the ammo and stuff, this is the first game that I really feel like you really want to crawl through every map and last space of screen real estate, even if there's nothing there. Whereas with Metal Gear Solid 2, I generally knew, okay, that's, you know, the door with the key card I need to get through. Um... Yeah. You, you don't really need to do exploring. It's like you unlock doors and this room might have stuff, but you're not like getting on your belly and you know, crawling through every log to see if there's bug juice inside and stuff like that. It's really great. <laughs> and then lastly, like we do, we like to lay out the landscape of video games when a Metal Gear Solid title comes out. So looking at video games in 2004, um there were not a whole lot of new consoles. The only ones were handhelds, the Nintendo DS and the PlayStation Portable. Otherwise, everything was generally on the same console generation as uh, things were happening when MGS2 was released back in 2001. But of course, all these uh, platforms were late in their life cycle. Developers were getting more out of them. And the next generation of uh, consoles as well as the games for them were already in development at this point. The biggest games from 2004 um, seems to be a building theme here that we get a Halo and a Grand Theft Auto the same year as uh, a Metal Gear Solid title that would be Halo Two and Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and don't worry I will give Brian a little bit of time here to talk about Halo Two Halo Two <laughs> <laughs> World of Warcraft Half Life Two Doom Three Ninja Gaiden on Xbox uh, Madden and NFL 2K was still kicking around back then
1: Fable was a big was a big like. It,
0: may not have been a great game, but it was a big, like, important game. People, It's a were, big deal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Metroid Prime 2, another game I'm going to give Brian some space to talk about, Knights of the Old Republic 2. Yeah, I, I wanted to say, yeah, it's it's the year that kind of feels like,
1: because the late 90s, early 2000s is when, like, the Tony Hawk games started becoming big, and, like, you started getting, sports games kind of became more prevalent, like... The late 90s, you'd have, like, NFL quarterback club that nobody played. But then, like, you get into early 2000s, NBA 2K is coming around, and the NBA Street games are coming out. Madden's becoming, like, really big, because I had Madden 98, and it was, like, a niche weirdo football game. Madden 2002 was a huge game. Um You start getting, so it, it's, games becoming a little more, the only way to say it is, like, cor- like corporate, t- like, you're starting to see, Halo two Mountain Dew in stores and like that. It's becoming more game trailers in before movies and stuff like that. Again, Halo Two. Um it is becoming more bankable as like a real thing.
0: Yeah, when we had a PD on uh, for the Metal Gear Solid 2 finale, we talked about how in 2001 it was still very much a Wild West with the digital age and what products were coming out in terms of movies and video games. We still had, you know, actor-driven blockbusters. Um, but shortly thereafter, all these companies figured out how to essentially monetize the rot. And that's basically how we just... Get because I used to buy the Madden titles before, you know, they were huge, but I would basically buy one every like third year or whatever. Um and basically get by on Madden 96 until, you know, Madden 99 or whatever. Mm. But this is where you really start seeing like, oh, I'm going to start buying the show every year, or I'm going to buy Madden every year. And I'm actually going to pour one out for the NFL 2K games. Uh, I actually enjoyed those because they uh, had the ESPN, like Sunday Night Football, like presentation for all of it, as annoying as Chris Berman may be. Uh, It kind of worked. And it also had this like quick play mode where you can like, pick any quarterback, any skilled player, any defense, and basically kind of do a quick fantasy draft matchup against a player. And I thought that was a cool mode. I'm sure Madden's absorbed that at this point because, you know, Madden's absorbing everything, I guess, football-related. But, but I think um, the,
1: what, the, what I was getting at real quick was um, mm-hmm. this is when you started to have games, think this kind of started with two, but this is when you started to have, like, knowledge farther than, like, six months out of what was coming out. Because people knew about San, people knew about San Andreas for like two years before it came out. Mm-hmm. Half-Life Two obviously had its huge, uh, had a lot of delays and a lot of. Uh, I mean, it had the whole game code leaked to the internet at one point. Um, but this is when you they started becoming more like. This is like when you started getting like I don't think the Game Awards is around. This is like when E3 was becoming a big thing that would be on television sometimes because G4TV existed. But like, this is a very transitory area. Two thousand four is. Uh, probably still if, if I was to put down like what my favorite games are, I think 2004 would have the highest concentration of I mean this this is my third favorite game. Halo 2 is one of my favorite games. Half Life 2 is my second favorite game. Kotor 2 is the sequel to my favorite game and, and in my top 10. So like it's a lot of stuff. Metro Prime 2 is one of, is a great game. like lots of big games came out of it this time and once they've held up, I honestly feel like this is when you start getting games that hold up, I feel like like I love Halo 1. I don't know if that holds up to someone who's ever played it before. I love Half Life One. Half Life One holds up, but that you know what I'm getting at, like it's becoming more of a mainstream thing at this point.
0: Yeah, I would even say MGS2 and MGS3 like mechanically are very similar, but the way they play, um, I, I don't think MGS2 plays poorly, but you can just tell how refined and precise the systems mm-hmm. got in MGS3 with the controls. Um, Because there was, like, no real precision with your player movement because it didn't matter. You didn't make noise when you walked and stuff in MGS2. But, um, yeah, I think that's actually a really good thinking, that this is kind of the window into, like, I know this is, you know, we're, like, three generations later from where we were in 2004 at this point or two generations, whatever it is. But, like, it feels like this is where, like, the modern, modern game or games that would still hold up uniformly in 2021 that kind of starts around here
1: the other thing i wanted to say is that um it's one of the reasons i I, people like to say that three was not as immediately a big hit as two because people hated two. i don't think that's the case i really just think it kind of got lost in the shuffle especially here we go when san andreas came out san andreas came out in october 2004. Halo 2 came out in November. When Halo 2 came out November 9th. Eight days. half of 2 came out November 16th. I, I know the day Halo 2 came out because I bought it when it came out. I didn't even own an Xbox. I bought it the day it came out anyway. My dad had one, so I went over to play at his house. Um, I want to say... When did we just say M.G.S. 3 released?
0: Because it was November. It was November 17th. So it's like within a week of both of those titles. The
1: day after Half-Life 2 came out.
0: <laughs> what an embarrassment of riches.
1: Yeah, like um, that kind of happened. That that's only happened recently. One of the reasons I still have not played uh, Horizon Zero Dawn partly is because I don't own a PS4. Like I have to go to my roommate's room to play it. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons I didn't play it is it came out like three weeks after Breath of the Wild and like two weeks after Nier Automata. It's like it's, you just got buried. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, yeah, those are the two two of the best games of the last decade came out within a week of each other. Like, what else were we supposed to be playing? That's kind of I feel like that happened really especially in the U.S. I feel like that happened with MGS3.
0: Yeah. And when MGS2 came out alongside a Halo and a Grand Theft Auto, neither of those franchises had any cultural cachet yet. No. Um, Because those were the initial titles or the initial version that really mattered to people in terms of Grand Theft Auto.
1: This is when you start getting games all coming out in November. Yes. Like 2002, 2003, 2004 is when it started really happening. It's like the big... You started getting a lot of because that's when you started getting a lot of advertising money put towards these games. And so they also are coming out on holidays. That's that's how it happens. It's still how it happens now. It's it's tailed off a little bit, but for about 10-15 years, that was when you put out your big games. Yes. The head of the CIA has finally given us the green
0: light for the virtuous mission. Virtual mission? No, the virtuous mission. October 16th, 1962. President John F. Kennedy receives a warning that the Soviets were deploying ballistic missiles in Cuba. Two weeks of naval positioning, escalating negotiations, and of course, fear of nuclear Armageddon followed in what would be known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviet Union would agree to withdrawal on October 28th under the official terms that the United States remove its missiles in Turkey. This was all a cover story though. What the Soviets really wanted was the return of weapons specialist Nikolai Stepanovich Sokolov. Sokolov was a famed Russian agent who helped design the Vostok A-1 rocket, the very one that sent Yuri Gagarin into space in the first manned spaceflight in April 1961. Sokolov would then be moved to weapons development. There, he began working on a project so monstrous it drove him to defect to the West, along with his family. His defection would be orchestrated by David O, oh, a former British officer turned CIA. O oh would get Sokolov and his family across the Berlin Wall, but then the events in Cuba went down and the US sent Sokolov back to the Soviets, where he was forced to resume his work on this doomsday weapon. It's now 1964. Sokolov's creation is nearing completion. Thanks to a mole working for the boss, a legendary soldier and the mother of U.S. Special Forces, the West learns of another opportunity to extract Sokolov before the weapon can be deployed. David O., now going by Major Zero, O, Zero, get it? would again be commanding the mission assigned to his Fox unit. August 24th, 1964. Virtuous Mission. Infiltrate Selino yarsk where Sokolov is being held, and extract him using Fulton ground-to-air recovery system. We'll save the in-depth Fulton discussion for Peace Walker, but I just have to note that the first time the series invoked, the Fulton recovery system is here. A MC-130E combat talon flies towards the destination as a lone Fox agent named Jack prepares to perform the world's first ever Halo, high-altitude, low-opening jump. He takes one last drag of his cigar while an onlooking soldier wonders if this panty waste knows what he's doing. Panty waste? That's a word I know from 1960s Stan Lee comics. If Peter Parker or Bruce Banner were being bullied, they'd often be called a panty waste or a milksop, uh, which just basically means a weakling or someone who's effeminate or fey. And if you really, really want to do some stretching here... Uh, August 1964 where the events of uh, this game take place is when, uh, amazing Spider-Man number 15 was released. And that's the comic that introduced Craven, the Hunter. And that, uh, you know, the Craven is a tracker, a hunter, very familiar <laughs> with animals. And there's even a section in that comic where uh Spider-Man secretly stalks Craven through uh Central Park, I believe. So well, I'm gonna jump in now and, and do my own thing. That nineteen sixty-four is also
1: the release of Susan Sontag's
0: On Camp essay,
1: which is I think very relevant to the interests of Metal Gear Solid 3.
0: I would agree. And as we covered last time, August 1964 was also when uh James Bond writer Ian Fleming passed away. And I actually believe, if we'll take this diversion for a second, is Kojima wanted to do this game in August 1963, because that's actually his birth month. Uh, But for the geopolitics of this game to actually kind of work out, um, they moved it to 1964 because they wanted to be after the Kennedy assassination and closer to when Khrushchev was removed uh, from office or from leadership.
1: That also opens up the idea that, that the boss assassinated kennedy which i've always thought was very funny to imagine
0: oh wow i never thought about that but that rules or like the Cobras, maybe the end killed him the end is the sniper oh man i'm gonna chew on that one for a while anyways our agent jack is given the codename naked snake as he successfully makes the jump and superhero lands himself behind enemy lines Selino Yarsh translates to Virgin Cliffs, and with Snake inserting himself into the Virgin Cliffs, and this being the virtuous mission, and Zero uses the phrase, don't be cocky, you can see how this is all very ribald. Zero introduces Snake to his support staff, who we'll dive into further next time. First, paramedic, Snake's on-call medic, and also logger of mission data, aka the save mechanic. Then there's the boss who's providing radio support from a submarine in the Arctic on, ironically, the same codec frequency as Iroquois Pliskin from Metal Gear Solid Two. Jack, is that you? How many years has it been? Boss? That's right. It's me. Oh. Talk to me. Let me hear your voice. It's been five years, seventy two days and eighteen hours. The boss, in addition to being the mother of special forces, is also Jack's mentor, mother figure, and closest friend and comrade. Or at least was, until five years ago when she disappeared on Snake. The two take a minute to catch up, including going over CQC, the close quarters combat technique they had developed together. Snake begins his search for Sokolov, finding him burning documents in an abandoned warehouse in Rasviet which translates to dawn or daybreak, which I want you to remember from Metal Gear Solid 5, but also Marvel fans may recognize it as a Winter Soldier trigger word that Baron Zemo uses in Civil War and the very not-good Falcon and the Winter Soldier. (laughs) Sokolov agrees to go with Snake, but first he feeds him some intel. Sokolov is currently being guarded by the KGB under the orders of Khrushchev because Khrushchev fears that radical members in the Brezhnev faction, a real-world anti-Khrushchev movement, wish to steal Sokolov and his weapons for their own purposes. The leader of these radicals is a Gru colonel named Yevgeny Borosevich Volgin, though us in the West may know him as Thunderbolt. As they try to leave Rasvjet, the KGB surrounds them, but then a lean, sharp-dressed Gru Major enters stage left, spurs ringing from his boots. This is Ocelot. Yes, that Ocelot. And he seems to be expecting the boss? Hmm. He eliminates all the members of the KGB as he tries to claim Sokolov for his own.
1: I just want to say real quick, I love, I love the way Sokolov says Gru. I just, I think about that a lot.
0: I try to recreate it, but I don't, I can't roll my R's that well, so I can't say Gru. A little too much showboating from Ocelot proves to be his undoing. He tries to do a bullet ejection trick, but his gun jams, giving Snake an opening to CQC and incapacitate Ocelot and his unit, known as the Ocelot Unit. Snake leaves Ocelot alive, seemingly charmed by the young soldier, telling him, But that was some fancy shooting. You're pretty good. On their way to the extraction point, Snake gets a glimpse of Sokolov's weapon, the Shagohod, a tank with nuclear launch capabilities. Its completion would turn the Cold War into a hot one. (laughs) I tried to—I wanted to say that in a Rob Thomas voice, but I chickened out at the last second. I apologize under the midday sun. (laughs) On an unstable rope bridge, Snake and Sokolov come face to face with the boss. She isn't supposed to be here, or is she? Boss says she's defecting to the Soviet Union, and Sokolov plus two Davy Crockett's, handheld nuclear rockets, are her gifts. A sudden swarm of bees distracts Snake long enough for a weird Spider-Man to steal Sokolov away into a copter. The boss's former team, the Cobra Unit, is here to back her up. Don't worry, those sickos will get their own episode here soon. Kuwabara, Kuwabara, says an enormous man joining our group. He's seemingly generating electricity as bullets protrude from his finger gaps. The Boss and her Cobras are teaming up with volgan and there's no room for Snake here. Volgan needs Snake eliminated, and Boss herself volunteers and ends up breaking his arm and chucking him off the bridge. On replay, we get that the Boss is banking on Snake surviving this fall. Snake survives the fall, but not without sustaining major life-threatening injuries, Paramedic walks him through treating his injuries, something the player themselves will do via the cure menu. Oh, and while you're barely keeping alive, you can catch sight of the corpse of the Sorrow using the R1 first-person trigger. We'll have more on all that later, because this opener's got one last punch left. As Volgan, the boss, and their units remove the Shagohad from Sokolov's old facility, OKB 754, Volgan decides to test out one of those Davy Crockett's. Remember the Alamo, he says as he nukes Sokolov's old facility, destroying the evidence of the Shagohod's creation and having something he can plausibly blame the American defector, the boss, for, in a way to help ensure her loyalty. Bolgan's a bit of a meathead, but he wasn't necessarily that stupid here. As we know, this single decision caused Operation Snake Eater, which we'll get into next time. The nuclear blast blows back Snake, and our last sight is of a mushroom cloud dissolving into the Bond-style opening song, Snake Eater, performed by Cynthia Harrell. What a thrill With darkness and silence through the night I'm searching and I'll into you. We'll go on with the story next time, but for now let's talk about some of the basic systems and ideas behind this game. MGS3's Virtuous mission serves as a tutorial for the game's mechanics. It gives you space and time to feel your way through the new environments, and there are lots of weapons and equipment scattered about. Machine gun, thermal goggles, etc. It really gives you a chance to get accustomed to the new systems, which the game will test you on early on during Operation Snake Eater. Most MGS games do set themselves up this way, but MGS3 is probably the best expression of that idea. From a visual graphics perspective, the game originally played at 30 frames per second compared to mgs 260 60, um, which was needed for the much more detailed backgrounds and environments. Um, I assume the HD remakes have bumped it up to 60, but I can't actually confirm that.
1: They're all 60, yes. I think the PS2, that one, was actually a 20-frame game a lot of the time.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: Yeah. yeah, it, it really that, that game slogs through some of the more fast-moving cutscenes, which... You can't really tell because it's there are usually just two or three characters and a simple backdrop. But yeah, that
0: game has a, a lot of frame issues, especially the pre subsistence version, from what I know. Mm-hmm. And then um, the big addition this time around is facial motion capture, which looks great, especially with Boss and Ocelot, who look great. Uh, Boss's face is actually based off of Charlotte Rampling, an English actress who I actually don't have any familiarity with, but. Moving on to the environments in this game. Um, They're predominantly outdoor wilderness environments until about, I'd say, halfway or two-thirds of the way into the game. Then they become much more indoor, at least concrete. Um, There's a lot of uneven ground and varied verticality. There's live fauna and flora in play that can be used for offense and defense and for gathering items. Uh, The weather varies between maps and within maps and over the course of boss battles even, such as the end. Um, sound is extremely important. You can now track guard movements using sound, but they can, they can also give you a way too. Your footsteps make noise. Um, and then you have a directional microphone by default in this game, it's something you got in MGS2 when you had to find uh, Agent Ames. Um, but here um, you're giving it right out the gate, and I actually end up using it a ton. We'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, you can also climb trees, hide in logs, uh, lay flat in the brush, um, there's so many more ways to hide, whereas uh, in previous game, it was basically behind a wall, behind a grade or an event. Um, now there's all sorts of ways to kind of hide in plain sight. And while the options to hide are varied and many, um, you're going to need them because the AI is... Uh, even more enhanced than the previous uh, game, um, the cone of vision and sense of sound are all heightened from previous games. Uh, motion and how fast you're actually moving make a big difference in terms of how visible you are. If Snake is running versus if he's like stealth sneaking, um, well, you know, can be the difference between evasion and an alert phase. And speaking of an alert phase, you now go through three levels of enemy searching for you. Um, The highest, of course, is alert. This is where the enemy has spotted you and is actively engaging you. There's there's an invasion phase where um, the enemy does not see you, but there's... uh, actively searching for you, and then caution is a heightened patrol mode, which is also the default mode for various actual maps of this game, like when you're fighting the Ocelot unit, or if you have to face them during the end battle arena and stuff like that. So,
1: Well, um, let me just say that uh, not having Soliton radar makes all that environmental stealth stuff actually necessary. You can't just look at the radar and use it to kind of work around like if, if, thinking specifically at the beginning of the first game, how uh, you can just sort of mm-hmm. you can just put one eye on the solen radar and just sort of walk around where the guys are, and it's not really difficult stealth. It's more just kind of there. It's there so the game can pretend can can have stealth uh, tactical espionage action on the cover. Right. It's not really a stealth game. It's it's, it's a Metal Gear game. Mm-hmm. Whereas as this game coming back to it again after having uh, played a lot of Hitman the last five years. The thing with stealth games is, like, you can just do the straight-up, like, sneaking-through-areas kind of stealth. Like, Deus Ex games do that. Splinter Cell does that. Some of Splinter Cell's do. Or you can do the game where, like, stealth games generally have really advanced AI. You can ha- make games where you can just mess with the AI. And that's much more fun to me. Mm-hmm. That's what this does. That's what Dishonored does. That's what Thief does. That's what Hitman does. And that's why those... This is the first Metal Gear game to really do that. Like, two... At the beginning of the Planet Chapter, you can do that a little bit. But like it's not a whole lot of it. There's not a whole lot of areas where there's a lot of guards in two, right? There's usually two or three guys in a room and you could just take them out. It's still mostly the best idea to just track your way through in two. And you can do that in three, but it's it's really the game gives you a lot of it doesn't force you to do it, which is a, which is a, which is a flaw with the game. like it should force you to. like V does that by having guards adapt start wearing helmets and stuff like that. But um, it does gives you more incentive. like it's more fun to, to take a guard out by capturing a snake a poisonous snake three hours before and hucking it at his face and kept poisoning him. It. Like it's much more fun to do stuff like that or shoot out shooting the, uh, beehives. So that it falls and pushes all the guys across the bridge and then hiding and waiting for them to come back or shooting out the, uh, <laughs> shooting out the ropes on the rope bridge. So they fall off of the bridge while they're yeah. running across it. That's always fun. Like there's a lot more stuff like that, a lot more fun to be had just messing with the guards and that too, we were talking before about the cutscenes. When you have, when you can just go mess around for half an hour in one area, just messing with guards, and then you get a cutscene. It's a lot less intrusive than two rooms cutscene, two rooms cutscene, like some of the other games can be. Mm -hmm. Thinking of two, two does that a lot.
0: Yeah, and I think speaking about sound, the other thing I noticed about this game is that uh, other than when you're in alert, in evasion or caution mode, when you're outdoors, there is actually not a score, Mm -hmm. um, because you really need to be paying attention to the animals, the sounds of feet walking, and stuff like that. Um, The patrols are more varied, Um, the soldiers are on longer loops, and they generally walk slower, uh, which is to also help support a different system we'll get into in a little bit, and sabotage. Um, Enemy AI are subject to the same system Snake is, which has always been true, but now you actually have ways to really play with those systems. You can attack supply depots, um, and, you know, if soldiers are hungry, you can feed them poison and they'll, you know, go to it. And we'll get to all that shortly, but um, because of all these changes, there's a lot more variety, uh, multiple ways you can go about things like you were describing. Getting into the mechanics and systems of the game... The first thing I want to highlight is just the controller mapping, because this is going to be the last Metal Gear Solid game to have that traditional Metal Gear Solid-style mechanics with its idiosyncratic aiming and inability to move while in the first-person view. I really just kind of want to mention it now, because when we get to MGS4, that's all going to change, and I actually think some of those changes for the MGS4 version are part of the themes that Kojima's playing with and his deconstruction of first-person shooters, but... We'll put a pin in that for now. Um, And then there's a new mechanic, which is uh, stalking using the D-pad. As mentioned earlier, your footsteps make noise. um, And that actually starts in this Metal Gear Solid and continues in all games going forward. Um, So you have to actually walk in a way that you're kind of muffling your footsteps so you can inch your way behind enemies and hold them up or CQC them or whatever. And this is... um, This is, once again, Metal Gear Solid trying to make use of all the buttons that are on the controller. Mm. Looking at the equipment for this game, as we already mentioned, the biggest change would be the no soliton radar. So instead, you're given... Uh, Items such as uh, anti-personnel sensor, sonar, motion detector, all sorts of lo-fi options to keep with the times for the in-universe technology. Um, If you remember from MGS1, Mei Ling is actually the one who invented the Soliton radar, even though you theoretically can develop it in games prior that take place chronologically before uh, MGS1 does in 2005. Weapons are generally lo-fi equivalents as well to previous games, but you still have a trank gun, a pistol, a machine gun, a rocket launcher, various grenades. Um, These are all very well researched um, for the environment specifically. Um, One example that comes to mind is the M9 shotgun, uh, which if you call SIGINT up, he'll let you know that um, the modifications the ocelot unit has made and the one that you find in the caves has a sawed-off barrel as well as uh, a truncated uh, butt or shoulder thingy, you know. um, So basically you don't get it tangled up in tree branches and vines as you're working through a jungle. Mm -hmm. A a big change for this game is suppressor degradation. Um, Everything degrades basically in this game, whether it's uh, your batteries, your suppressor, snake stamina. But the suppressor degradation is one of those things that kind of forces you away from just tranking everyone as you go through the maps or killing them however you want to be yes. and actually either engage more in the stealth mechanics or find other ways to incapacitate guards that might be in your way. It was definitely something that threw me for a loop the first time because in MG- in MGS 1 and 2, as soon as I got the suppressor for whether it's the pistol or the trank gun, um, all bets were off. I'd pretty much just clear out every map and then you know pick up all the goodies from there. But not really a viable option here. And then there's also TNT, which can be used to bomb enemy supply depots and helicopters, which we'll get into as we get into those maps. And then, of course, there's close quarters combat, or CQC, uh, which you can do when unarmed or equipped with a single-handed weapon um, and give Snake a variety of moves um, When he grabs a soldier from behind, you can throw or knock them down by pointing the left stick in a direction. You can choke them out, interrogate them, or just slit the throat of your captured assailant. Uh, One thing I could never pull off in the HD collection is an interrogation because I believe that is the pressure sensitivity on the circle button. And you have... On the original PlayStation 2, if you press down slightly, um, you could interrogate the guard. If you press down all the way, you will slit his throat. Um, but for me, playing on a PlayStation 4 in the HD collection, no matter how hard I press the circle button, it always slits their throat. On the Xbox, it's um, it's a stick.
1: One of the sticks you have to click, oh. I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I did it a fair amount. I actually went through and I, I got most of the health and stamina radio stations which is one of my favorite dumb easter eggs in the game yes it's snake snake can be critically wounded but then he just listen to some surf rock for a minute or two and like, I feel great Yeah,
0: my cheat for this game so that I could go behind everyone and CQC them but not slit their throat um, was to basically tap on the circle button because that effectively chokes them out. So that's Mm -hmm. how I kept uh, non-lethal plays alive Uh, because I really like to CQC if I can. Um, It was something I didn't do much my first time playing uh, Metal Gear Solid 3, but especially in 4 and 5, I really came to love CQC and now I try to use it whenever I can uh cqc can also actually be used in melee and boss fights it's not just a stealth mechanic um it comes up when you fight vulgan and especially the boss you kind of have to be able to cqc her to beat that fight
1: or you could just or you can get annoyed and just um equip the shotgun when she charges at you and her health out like that like i did oh gee. Or oh, shoot rockets at her feet because i i tried to cqc her for it was two tries and i got killed but i just got annoyed so i just <laughs> just like cartoonishly fired right like it's very funny in that extremely dramatic boss fight to just be
0: firing off rockets and grenades at her all the time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it's worked. It worked fine. Yeah. That's mostly how I got it to work. The, I think the first time I beat it, because my, my thinking was very traditional video games. You're at the final boss. You use your strongest weapons. Uh, but then when I went and saw people, it's like, oh, it's easiest just to use CQC or your pistol. I'm like, huh? Interesting. Um, and there is an in-story narrative about CQC because it is something that was uh, in this universe developed by the boss and Naked Snake together. And there's an arc to it as well because in the first couple times that Snake and the boss uh, show down, uh, the boss just wipes the floor with you. Like, Snake doesn't even get a blow in. But as it goes on, um, there's one in Sokolov's holding cell in Grozny Um, There's one in the Shadow of the Shagohad. Um, in each of those, you see Snake. Snake. Snake is holding his own more and more so, uh, but the boss still beats him in the end. But I do like that there is kind of a progression here. And I actually think it's pretty well done stunt choreography, especially when Snake's taking out several members of, say, the Ocelot unit. Um, They actually do it really well. It looks fairly realistic. It's obviously a little bit contrived, but um, it looks really good. And I think we're going to get some more of that in MGS4. And it looks especially great in MGS4 when Old Snake's doing it as well. Moving on to perhaps the most fun system in the game, the camouflage, and it also happens to be the source of the best collectibles in this game. Um, You have a camo index in the top corner, 100% means you're practically invisible, and 0, or worse, means you're exposed to everyone to see. You start with uh, several basic camos that are made for the forest and the jungle, and then you can acquire several throughout the game. You can get special patterns such as Desert Tiger, Splitter, Chocolate Chip that improve your camo index in certain environments. And certain camos may also have certain qualities such as preventing battery drain or suppressor degradation. If you beat any of the bosses non-lethally in this game, you can get special camos that may have even better special abilities. We will get into those individually with each boss as we encounter them. And then there's also certain camos available to you depending on the new game settings you pick because when you start a new game, it asks you, I played Metal Gear Solid 1, I played Metal Gear Solid 2 and loved it, I played Metal Gear Solid 3 or Metal Gear Solid 2 and hated it. And then there's in the subsistence version, I played Metal Gear Solid 3 and love it. And if you select that, you get a couple additional camos such as the Oscam cop uh, camo and the Flactarian camo. I love Flectarn. I use on a lot in, inside. It's more fun to me. It looks cooler. Yes. And then there are camos and uniforms that are available upon beating the game or accomplishing certain feats. Um, there is a stealth camo if you can... Uh, beat the entire game without causing an alert like I just did in my last playthrough. Um, You get a tuxedo, which is very much uh, a common thing for Metal Gear Solid games and stuff like that. So um, many ways to collect camos. And uh, in my opinion, I think the camos generally look good in the environments they should. Yeah. I was playing uh, on a repeat playthrough this time around, where I fought the end wearing his moss camo. And when you enter that arena and you get that cutscene and you see Snake's camo against the background, it almost completely blends in. It's almost like David, or sorry, Snake's floating head, uh, right there. So um, I think it looks pretty good, all things considered, for you know having to make sure it's still visible to the player. Mm-hmm. Moving on, uh, there's a stamina and eating system in this game. Under Snake's life bar is a stamina bar that's partitioned into four parts. Um, A full stamina bar allows Snake's life to regenerate naturally. Over time, your stamina slowly decreases, so you need to find moments to rest and to eat to regenerate it back. Um, Quitting and returning later also automatically restores your stamina. This is the equivalent of sleeping in the game. Low stamina can impact you by injuries causing more life damage and making it harder to have a steady aiming hand. Um, and then stamina drain rate can be affected by what camo you wear, such as being naked or if you wear the fears camo. Um, those drain your stamina quicker. The weather will uh, drain your stamina quicker if it's raining and other sorts of environmental triggers like laying on a cold floor, or something like that. Um, you can regain stamina by eating food, which can be obtained or hunted for. All fauna in the environments can be captured or killed and eaten in those states. Um, Some animals, such as frogs and spiders, can be poisonous. Um, There are snakes, gators, birds, bees, um, all out there for you to hunt. Um, I want to highlight a couple of them, give you a chance to speak on some of these. Um, The first one is the Markor, which is a capra species or a goat-like creature that's found on the end map or the ocelot boss fight. Um, I want to highlight the Markor because Markor translates to snake eater in Persian, and it's not the only place that that pun is made. Um, There's also three snakes in the final arena that you battle the boss, and if you capture these three snakes, they are named liquid, solid, and solidus. And then there's also the Tsuchinoko, which I like to call the chonky snake, um, but is actually a Japanese a Japanese cryptid. It's basically a short, fat snake, for lack of a better word. A snake as in the animal snake, not a short, fat, like, naked snake. I captured it this time, finally, and kept it. I have never captured it.
1: One of my favorite things in the entire game is when, because uh, you lose all your equipment when you get captured, it's right before you go into the waterfall. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah after you leave the waterfall, after you get all your equipment back, you you can walk out. You can walk back out before you go back into the base, and the Sushinoko will just be sitting there, hanging out, like just chilling. So you can just trank him again and, and grab him again. So I did that, and it was very very satisfying.
0: Oh, that's very cool. You get,
1: you get the Infinity face camo in it, which I think is the best camo. Is that the one where you have unlimited ammo, or uh, I'll make sure. I actually haven't. I haven't restarted with it yet. I never had it before. <laughs> Yes, it is infinite ammo.
0: Okay, so uh, if you capture the Tsuchinoko and... Make it to the end of the game, yeah. Yes, you get infinite ammo. Um, On top of the foods that you hunt, there are obtainable foods like rations, calorie mates, instant noodles... um, And those things are good because they don't spoil as opposed to everything else that you may capture out in the wild, which does spoil. If you eat spoiled food, um, it may recover your stamina, but it will definitely make you sick and you'll have to address your stomach pains in certain ways. But then also if food spoils, it can be fed to hungry enemies, which can be a very effective distraction technique or incapacitation technique. And it actually finds its way into one of the boss battles that we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. Um, And then there are also radio stations and camouflage that can help prevent stamina drain, which is something that uh, Brian alluded to a little bit earlier. So The virtue in having full stamina and using stamina to recover your life is that you don't have to use any health items during the game. There is a health item called life medicine, which just straight up gives you more life in your life bar. But otherwise, you can use stamina to recover it. And if you do not use any health items, then you get additional bonuses and a higher ranking at the end of the game. Um, And then to go along with all this food, enemy food depots can be bombed. And when you do that, you lower enemy stamina in nearby maps, making them easily distracted by that rotten food, and also just easier to incapacitate Um, the tranquilizer darts, work a little quicker, all that sort of stuff. Um, There's definitely an incentive to try to bomb as many enemy depots as you can. And then lastly, there is the cure system, which is definitely the least fun of the new systems. If snake incurs certain injuries, he has to dive into the cure menu and perform certain first aid operations. These include sewing up lacerations, treating bullet wounds, burning off leeches, etc. Different injuries require certain applied items like bandages and disinfectant for cuts. And then there's also uh, certain medicines you can take. There's cold medicine if you catch a cold, which might happen if you lay in a puddle for too long. Uh, digestive medicine if you eat rotten food, as we mentioned. Uh, serum if you get poisoned, like you eat a frog that you shouldn't. You, know, you love to eat those tree frogs, don't you? <laughs> um, so there's all sorts of ways that this cure menu works. And then a lot of the bosses inflict wounds that require you to actually dive into your cure menu, um, which can be annoying Um, all injuries accumulated during the mission are logged as are injuries from prior to the game. Um, You know, you can see injuries that snake bore from previous missions. And when you're uh, on an escort mission with Eva, you can also take a look at her health chart. If you're really curious, she apparently has breast implants. Um, And then the whole point of all these injuries and stuff is that um, if you have an injury that requires diving into the cure menu, your life is actively draining. You'll see it because... uh, What's it called? There's like a red, like tip to your life bar. Red overlay, yeah. And then, um, it, your life will continue draining until you actually dive into the menu and you know dig out the bullet or what have you.
1: I I like the cure system because it's there's nothing there's no games ever done anything like that. Even a lot of survival games that come out now don't have systems like that. I think the reason it's tedious to a lot of people is that it's um it's like the water temple thing with a oh, grind right of time, like going into the menu, putting on your boots, taking off, going out of the menu, taking off. You know, like it's just. Some boss fights can get bogged down if you are having trouble avoiding the fear, in particular, because you have to take those arrows out, yeah. quickly. Or they uh, they they keep poisoning you. Although hilariously, if you leave if you don't take one out, it'll be in snake for the rest of the game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember that. about
1: Even that. in the cutscenes, he just has like an arrow sticking out of his neck, which is very funny. Um, but the uh, the other thing I like about the cure system is it really makes snakes seem inhumanly tough in a way that even like. I always think of like how the, the Batman Arkham games make him seem like he's unstoppably tough because he just gets he gets a him the whole game. He has persistent damage on his suit that that builds up over the game. But like this in a gameplay sense, a I like that if you don't change camo, you'll just have blood on your camo mm-hmm. for as long unless you wash it off, which is good. Um, if he's naked, if he's not wearing a shirt, and you like get burned, you can see the bandages on where he put the bandages on for the burn. Or bandages for you know, stab wound or anything like that, which is really neat. Um, but the thing the, the biggest gameplay advantage it has is that recovering from those red bar injuries increases your max life bar to the extent that you can become like I mean, you can take like 30 bullets at one point. Like uh I, I was I didn't get hit that much in this one, but I remember the first time I played, I was so tough that Vulcan even comments on it when he tortures you. And when I fought him, I had as much life bar as he did, which is, uh, Morgan has a huge life bar. Right. I thought that was neat. I thought I didn't even think, I didn't even really notice it was going up until that point. I was like, oh wow, I have like three times as much health as I used to because I kept getting hit in the face with arrows
0: <laughs> Yeah.
1: or like running into traps because I didn't know what I was doing. But it's, 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 it's almost like a, um, an adaptive difficulty because like you if you're getting, if you're getting hurt a lot. that Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You need more health. Like. Because sometimes I've described this game to people, and it sounds like like Ark or like uh, Rust or one of these like survival games. It's really tough and brutal. It's not. It's not a hard game at all. It's very easy. Yeah. To get through, I think that's one of the things. It's like an adaptive difficulty curve, which I really like. Yes.
0: And I, I know I said you know it's the least of my favorite systems, but I don't like actively hate the cure systems. It's
1: just going into the menu is tedious.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine if they ever like did a remake of this game. Like both uh, the cure menu, um, the camouflage, a lot of that stuff would probably be radial menus or like quick uh, switch menus like assigned to a trigger button or something. Like there would be some mechanic where you don't have to go full on into a pause menu. Mm -hmm. Uh, There'd probably be a way to set like three or four common camos or something like that. Um, But yeah, and one of the neat things, and we'll kind of talk about it as we go through the games, is that all these systems also interact with each other in fun ways, um, which we'll get into Um, The last thing I wanted to mention about gameplay is just that all these systems we talked about, curing and eating and changing your camo, those are all... um Available through the survival viewer, which is just a really fancy way of saying the pause menu. Um, But that's where those systems live. And then there's also a backpack menu option there, which this is the first time that Metal Gear Solid is kind of limiting the number of items you can carry at any one time. Um, It's not like a huge constraint. It's not like you'll get in Peace Walker in five. Yeah, he still has a he can carry like 14 guns (laughs) if he wants. Eight,
1: eight guns, eight. eight guns, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's eight, but uh, like you could have it be rocket launcher, machine gun, assault, right? Like you can, you know. But um, the fun part of that is that the more weight you actually carry, um, the quicker your stamina drains. So if I'm doing a non lethal playthrough, I generally keep my, you know, items list uh, or weapons uh, backpack pretty light just because I don't need a whole lot. Um, And then a fun thing in the survival viewer is that you can actually spin Snake around (laughs) really fast if you like uh, rotate the uh, analog stick. And this might just seem some silly, dumb stuff, but you can spin him around, and then when you return to gameplay, he actually vomits. Um, Which, again, might seem silly, but there's actually a gameplay use for that, and we'll get into that when we get to that scene. You
1: can make him do idle animations by hitting R1, I think. Yep. I don't know what it is. I think it's the bumpers on the HD version. Just, you know, fun stuff to do in the menus, I guess.
0: Yeah, like that—that's one thing I like about Metal Gear Solid, and it really shows itself here because none of the other games really had an in-depth pause menu. It was either pause or the codex screen. Um, But every part of the game gets due attention and thoughtfulness, and you can see that here in the um, game design in the survival viewer screen.
1: Yeah, like two and people talk about the details of MGS two, and they often talk about like the shooting all the pantry the whole pantry up in the Mm -hmm. in in the tanker and like how cool it is and how details but like it's cool it's it's fun details somebody worked on but they don't really do anything to help the gameplay whereas this game all the weird kojima stuff is is like almost too i think almost all of it has an actual gameplay purpose like you wouldn't think that keeping spoil like the the food spoiling if you turn your game off for more than i think it's six hours your food spoils Mm -hmm. or maybe it's 12. But like that has a gameplay purpose. You can, you can you still have a use for spoiled food. Um, you still have a use for capturing animals, capturing live animals, other than just to do it and look at their models. Like you can throw them at people. You can use. I um I'll talk about this again. I actually the first thing I did when I was fighting the end this time I didn't counter-snipe him. I hunted him. I tracked him. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was find this bird cap and drank it and capture it, not kill it, because that pisses him off and he gets more aggressive. So I captured his bird and at one point I let it go and it went right to where he was and I was able to hold him up and get and and take some last some salmon out really easily. Um then I captured his bird a second time and almost ate it on accident. <laughs> but yeah, it's fun. That that's that's stuff you can do. That
0: it, it it makes the game it enhances the game play a lot more yeah. than it did in the other games. And it's not just that, you know, their uses in the game, but almost all of them have like a significant use in a boss fight or like an actual critical moment in the game. It's not just because a lot of the previous Metal Gear games, there would be stuff that would be just like relegated to a single puzzle. Yeah. Like, you know, the Nikita missile or, you know, repelling, what, whatever have you. But here, everything is basically in play from the f- first moment of the game to the last moment of the game. And it all actually matters to boss fights. Like, there's not like, oh, it only works in this scenario. It generally works across the board. The um, Hornets' does. Mm-hmm. They have a specific use in one boss fight. I'm sure you can guess which one if you played the game. Uh, yeah, no, it's really cool. And that also makes all the thoughtfulness around the environments and arenas for the boss fights that much uh, mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. But You can get the fear to, you can get him with those booby traps. Ooh, you can. Ooh, I can't wait to talk about that. It doesn't do a whole lot, but it's still fun to do. So we want to wrap up our introductory episode with kind of talking about the organizing theme for this game, which is "scene" as in spelled S C E N um, E, and it's carrying on the themes from previous games, which were "gene," "meme," and now "scene."
1: Yeah, which which uh, those three they are they are in order because I don't. Despite what Kojima says, he didn't mean to do it this way, but those three letters all do start with N G and S, which. Made me slap myself on the head the first time I realized it in like 2014.
0: <laughs> well, I am just realizing this on May 11th, 2021. So um, crazy. But Uh, When we talk about scene, uh, the theme for this game, I want to talk about the many meanings of scene because I think a lot of people have touched on many of these, but I don't think they've touched on all of them. And I think it's good to kind of lay these out so that as we go through the game, we can say, ah, this is feeding that theme.
1: Yeah, it it is the vaguest of the three, too. Yes. So I think it needs more to be like, more to... needs to be fleshed out a little more.
0: Yeah, and I've also seen some really strained... You know, oh, this, you know, the scene is important for Eva because of the setting or like there's some really not great arguments about what scene means and why it matters for this game. But hopefully we won't be joining that fraternity of bad thinkers. Um, The first meaning of scene is meaning the times, which is, you know. The 1960s setting here, invoking the Cuban Missile Crisis, and how even the jungle environments that are depicted in this game that are in you know Western Russia are very similar to the Cuban jungles where the CIA were actually running clandestine operations during the early 60s. Those very
1: real Russian jungles, by the way. Yes. <laughs> they definitely exist. Maybe maybe it's not. I don't know. It would be because he because Kojima is such a fan of American— he's such a fan of Rambo. Um, I always thought it was supposed to be kind of a Vietnam game, too. Mm-hmm. It definitely, at least a little, yeah. If only, if only through the Rambo reference,
0: right? And then I think uh, the 1960 setting and the Cold War and Soviet Union stuff. A lot of that, in terms of the bigger themes of this game, are going to talk about the impermanence of allies and enemies. Um, From the Cold War to the end of history to the war on terror to now, uh, which is still kind of the war on terror, but um, we see that who our enemies are has always changed. It was Russia or it was the Soviet Union. And then it was, you know, communism in Latin America. And then we were at the end of history and we were just bombing the Balkans and stuff. And then, you know, we moved on to the war on terror and the brown people became the bad guys. And then Trump became president and then it was Russia again. Um, A lot of this is... Uh, seen in the meaning of the times, but also kind of the context that, you know, things are always shifting and there is no absolute enemy or absolute ally. And there's also a certain 1984 aspect to all this. Like you, we were always at war with East Asia. You know, we were always at war with Russia, I said, in 2017, even though we didn't care about them until Trump took office again. Um, it's kind of feeding on the impermanence of these p- political allegiances that drive The world, for lack of a better term. And then taking it back to the scene of the 1960s, there's also the reemergence of the central nuclear bomb themes that were really prevalent in MGS1, but were definitely um, less prevalent in MGS2 as there were much bigger ideas in play there. So uh, scene can also refer to the setting, which is the place, um, which we already mentioned the jungle environments in Russia. Um, It's a radically new environment for MGS, and it's no longer kind of uniform and simple and stuff like that. And then this is one of the ones I don't see mentioned a lot, but instead of using scene as S-C-E-N-E, I'm going to use the homophone here, uh, scene, seen, S E E N, because this game is very much about being seen and unseen, um, as depicted through the camouflage system, or as designed, you know, through the camouflage system. And this story very much is about what is visible, what is surface level in terms of plot, and then what is hidden to us. The actual operation or mission undercutting, you know, both virtuous mission and Snake Eater is something we don't really find out until the very last moments of this game. But, um, you know, that's all happening. And it's basically unseen to us until it's seen at the very end.
1: I would even say that there is still a fair amount of the postmodernist deconstructive stuff from two mm-hmm. and one. But it's not. It's kind of hidden behind this fun action movie. Like it's much, much subtle. It's the closest thing to subtle Kojima ever becomes.
0: Yes, I agree with that. And then uh, also speaking on scene, like S-E-E-N in terms of seeing stuff, this game introduces uh, R1 triggers and special first-person views during cutscenes, which is something they will carry forward to MGS4, Um, but basically um, if you're in a cutscene and you see the R1 button in the corner, you can... Press the R one button, and then you look out of Snake's eyes, usually at Eva's ass or boobs, uh, but sometimes you'll catch some really interesting stuff. Or the sorrow.
1: Yeah. There's a bunch of them that are hidden, also.
0: Yes, and I think you get either a trophy or you get stuff you if you yeah. encounter, if you unlock these secret ones, and we'll bring those up as we go because some of them are both goofy and hilarious. Um, and I think one was the basis for the ending for the Rise of Skywalker, but we'll save that one. <laughs> So and then the last uh, meaning of scene I want to invoke here is one that we've kind of alluded to throughout is seen as in a part of a film, a movie scene, because of all the games, this is the most heavily film influenced in the sense that it's actually presented to the uh Player as an actual movie, you know, it's designed as a Bond film, which we discovered or discussed at length in the previous episode. Um, it has a theme song. Has an intermission. It, it does have an intermission, um, and you know, you during the actual uh, game, your save mechanic, paramedic will often discuss movies with you, and we're actually going to go into some of those movies next time, and then we can start rattling off major film influences, um, many of which are highlighted, like mentioned specifically in the game. Um, There's The Great Escape, which gives a lot of the aesthetic Um, of this game in terms of how the bases look towers look um the crawling on the floor the towers and spotlights um there's dirty dozen which is uh a great you know world war ii epic just like the great escape um guns of navarone um both of these movies are kind of demolition stories where you assemble a ragtag group of people um but you'll find characters like the commander Jepson in guns of navarone is very similar to major zero um And then there's Predator and First Blood. I'll take Predator because the gameplay of this um, entire MGS3 is basically Predator. It's camouflage. It's using your thermal goggles. It's crawling on the jungle floor. Um, It couldn't be any more Predator. Even uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character smokes a cigar like Big Boss and is actually a major um, influence on the design of Big Boss for this game. But we'll get into that next
1: week. believe the machine gun is the same one that I Arnold uses, too. I, that's kind of like the default 80s machine gun, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, First Blood, it's really just like jungle setting. Uh, and then, like, obviously Snake also takes out some Rambo. I think people have mentioned this. There's kind of the sliding scale of action move, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: how stoic you are. And one of the, one of the most enjoyable things about Big, Big Boss is that he's much farther. He's much more on the lighter side of that scale. Then like John Rambo, who's sort of like the most taciturn, joyless, just like brutal and like uh, just no nonsense, quote unquote, hero in the history of cinema, <laughs> action hero. Like he's he's it's it's John McClane on one end, and like kind of James Bond, and then it's Rambo on the other end. And, and Naked Snake is much farther out to the top of that scale, which is makes him more fun. Yeah, like he's not shouting one liners all the time, but he does he cracks jokes and like smiles as fun sometimes even in this game.
0: Yeah, he cracks a smile as he knows he's about to drop a fucking beehive on a guard and make him run across a bridge. Like, it literally gives him a little bit of joy (laughs) that he's about to do that when he realizes it. So, um, yeah, I definitely agree with that characterization of Naked Snake, which we'll get into in depth next week. And the last movie I wanted to mention here, which is, you know, a Kojima staple, uh, The Rock, which we mentioned in relation to the previous Metal Gear titles. But I really watching it uh, recently, um, Hummel, uh, played by Ed Harris in uh, the movie, is very much one of those kind of proto big boss characters that you can see Um, the game or the movie actually opens with. Hummel going to the grave of his wife and saluting. It's almost like the opposite of, uh, MGS three where you end on that almost same exact scene. Um, Hummel's character in, uh, the rock is, uh, American soldier who's done all sorts of wet work, um, but all of his soldiers have been disabused, not treated well, not given the proper send-off. So he's looking to cre- essentially create a haven for his soldiers who have nowhere else to turn. So you can see a lot of the big boss themes that kind of get more fleshed out, I would say, in Peace Walker and all that stuff. Um, but you can definitely see it here, especially with the ending and the similarity with the uh, Arlington uh, gravestone um, what's it called kind of saluting that's shown in the movie and in the game supposed to think the only thing we can believe in with absolute certainty is the mission jack all right but do me a favor what is it call me snake snake all oh, right your code name is snake it suits you well and that's mission complete for this episode our frequency is PodcastSansFrontieres at gmail.com and Podsads front on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. We're men with names. <laughs> That's my new quote. I'm Adam and you're John. <laughs> yep. Uh, no. Uh, shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So, until next time, remember, you have a way to fall. So, you've got a way to fall. They'll tell you where to go, but they won't.
1: You'd better take it all They'll tell you what they know Opens up the idea that that the boss assassinated Kennedy, which I've always thought was very funny to imagine.
0: Oh wow, I never thought about that, but that rules. Or like the Cobras, maybe the end killed him. The end is the sniper. Oh man, I, I'm going
1: to chew on that one for a while. Maybe maybe they maybe they uh, removed Kennedy's brain and hit it because there was a pain bee stuck inside. <gasps> <it>. No.
0: <laughs> oh god. Um, our agent. I'm imagining, I'm imagining the
1: pain doing backflips and posing in the background of the Zapruder film. (laughs) No, who's that?
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, All right. Anyways, our (laughs) agent Jack is given the codename Naked Snake. Use of all the buttons that are on the controller. It is 5120. I have to stop for one second because Gendry vomited and the other cat's trying to eat it. Oh, good. Um, So give me one second and I'll be right back. That's perfect.
1: I'm actually gonna run and get some water.
0: Yeah. Hey, do not eat the vomit. Did you vomit?